This is 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm talking today to Robert Mull, who is something of a polymath. He's an architect and an academic and part of the leadership team at Publica. But he's here today to talk specifically about the Global Free Unit, which is an international network of partners and projects designed to allow architects and students to use their skills to help to address pressing social issues, including displacement and migration. My second guest is Elizabeth Cunningham, a Canadian architect who left a career as an architect in the UK to move to Turkey's third largest city, Izmir, where she's using her skills to improve the lives of refugees. So, um, Robert, tell us about the Global Free Unit. Um, You initiated it, I think, 17 years ago. What were you trying to achieve then? Have you managed it? (laughs) And uh, how have your priorities changed? Yeah, I mean, there's one question is, why did it come about and why is it or isn't it useful? I mean, there were two sort of motives for it, one of which I think, as you've touched on, is is just how we as architects and students really engage with and take part in some global challenges and climate change, equality, diversity, scarcity, um, and some sort of displacement. And I think displacement is what's brought um, us together here today. The other is just really tackling the sort of perennial issues around higher education, debt, Again, lack of diversity, um, bad mental issues and so on. And I suppose there's a disconnection between the ways in which students operate in schools of architecture and the ways they're asked to operate when they're faced with real life situations. So um, it came out It came out of a very specific set of conversations when I was working um, in the refugee crisis in Lesbos and uh, Calais. People would say to me, they'd just say, every time they heard I was a involved in education, they'd sort of look at me rather quizzically and say, um, why can't what I'm doing here be education? So they'd say, you know, I built that shelter, I dug that infrastructure, I planned the housing in in Calais, Um, I built that theatre, I I did all of that. Why isn't that education? Robert, find ways of crediting that so that I can do that and get education and become an architect. And I don't have to pay for a vice chancellor's airline tickets or carpets or any of those things. I can actually have an education free of debt, embedded in real life situations and do useful things. So that's how the Global Free Unit came about. And have you found ways of formally crediting and recognising the work that students on the Global Free Unit do? Yeah, I mean, we have our sort of um, archipelago of live project classrooms have all sorts of partners and sort of alliances, and some of those are with universities. So there are ways in which, for instance, the work that's happening in Izmir at the moment is embedded in a course. The work that we've done in Lesbos is credit-bearing. So effectively, we're we're reaching that sort of wonderful tipping point where you can sort of... um, spend a lot of time within the global free unit world and sort of accumulate collect credits and we our real aim is to bolt that together into an entirely new form of architectural credit and and route towards becoming an architect so elizabeth you left a career as an architect and a comfortable existence in leafy somerset <laughs> i did um 
on a whistle and a prayer, really, wasn't it? It was a, a, a sort of brief conversation with Robert. Do you want to explain why you took the decision to leave everything behind and go to Izmir and what you're actually doing now? Well, actually, it started with a brief conversation with you, as I recall, which then led to a conversation with Robert. Uh, for me, it was a real frustration and disillusionment with practice as, it, as, as I could find it. I had done a number of different, slightly unusual things in an effort to practice in a different way. They didn't really seem to be working out. Uh, my interest had become affordable housing. I'd started my, my career in very high-end residential uh, work, and I really had no interest anymore in building second, third, fourth homes for wealthy people. Uh, but pursuing a career in affordable housing in the UK and, and, and the other countries where I've been lucky enough to work was a really difficult proposition and, and to make a living at that. So really what it was, was to take some time off for me. And I, I was fortunate enough that I had some savings and uh, it just seemed like, you know, like everyone, I was seeing the migration crisis unfold, the people in, in the Mediterranean. And I just thought I have some time while I sort out where I want to, what I want to do next, why don't I volunteer? So this is how you put me in touch with Robert. There was a project running here in Izmir. Um, of course, the first, my first instinct was to go to Greece, but Robert also informed me really for the first time that the, the journey starts in Turkey. This is where people are coming over the border. And Izmir in particular is a place where people come some, initially they were coming here temporarily hoping to go further on to Europe. This has become less and less true. People are settling here. So there are different types of needs here in Izmir. And I was involved initially with the project where we were doing small things for people who are living in camps outside of the city. And how much do you feel that your expertise in architecture and urbanism is actually influencing the work you're doing? And how much is it actually just, you know, all hands on deck? <laughs> I would say at the moment, it's really an all hands on deck uh, sort of situation. What I, I, what I do bring to the community center where I'm volunteering at the moment is just an architect's ability to reconcile a lot of different types of information and a lot of things changing very quickly and being able to make sense of things. And I've helped to put a few systems in place that didn't exist before. And it's more the, an architect's ability to organize very disparate things, to herd cats, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm bringing to, to, to Tiafi at the moment. Um, but my background in architecture and my profession is coming into play with Robert's uh, other projects. So, Robert, what, what's the relationship between the sort of the strategic and academic agenda of the Global Free Unit and individual initiatives like the community centre where Elizabeth's working? Yeah. I mean, the basic premise of the Global Free Unit is that there is, a, there is another place hosted by somebody who needs help. Now, that could be a, an arts organisation, a community centre like TFA, it could be a camp. Um, we're working in, say, Weatherby Young Offenders Prison as well, training young people in architecture. So it's a sort of hosting model where somebody expresses a need. And then we, in, we bring in different personalities, actors, sources of funding into that classroom. And they bridge between conventional definitions of, sort of research 
academia volunteering activism. And we, I suppose, we act as sort of jump leads between what would otherwise be quite disparate ways of working and forms of funding. And we put them together and we sort of lock them into this long-term relationship with a classroom or with a place. Um, and we hope to the benefit of all of those different parties. It also brings funding into places like TFA, you know, from um, manoeuvring to get computers for people who need them and so on. Um, but it also turns those who are involved in the form of education into people who can do something useful while they're studying. You're listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. One of the most liberating things, particularly for students, you know, sophisticated students who've spent five years worrying about what their role is and worrying where their skills might be necessary. It's incredibly focusing and liberating for them to connect all of this thought and worry and training and what they think politically and ethically and go to somewhere where actually people have a pretty good understanding of what architects do and actually want you to do it. But that's from sort of herding cats through to just sort of realising that the whole refugee camp is flooding because somebody hasn't unblocked the culvert under the road. And what's weird is that in these situations, there's face painters, there's sociologists, there's teachers, there's artists, but there's very few architects. The architect skills are really, really sort of like needed, but they're sort of humble skills. I know you've just put on this exhibition where you invited architecture students to look at spatial interventions that could improve the lives of refugees. Elizabeth, can you tell me a bit about the kind of projects the students came up with and probably more to the point, um, what the refugees themselves thought of them? Very good questions. Um, First of all, I, what they started out doing was looking at uh, neighborhoods in Izmir where uh, both internal and external migrants have congregated. They're uh, marginalized parts of the city. They, took very, they did very close analysis of these neighborhoods, which may never have been done. I, I'm not sure. I, I have not been able to find anything, that, anything to suggest that there's been a study of this depth ever done in these neighborhoods. And then you know, as architecture students do, they pulled things apart and put them back together in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And they did a tremendous amount of work uh, and really detailed analysis of these these neighborhoods um, at a time when they couldn't be here. This is another thing to, I think is extraordinary. The work, the, what they've produced is, is quite amazing because most of them have never been to Izmir. None of them, almost mm. none of them have been. There are some local students, but also these are neighborhoods that these students wouldn't normally visit for any reason. So they too were working at a distance in some ways. Uh, and then from there, from that analysis, they worked individually and they worked as groups uh, to produce different levels of housing from what I think we're starting to call now welcome housing rather than emergency housing, because this is not an emergency situation any longer really in Izmir. Uh, then to midterm and long-term housing solutions, many of which include opportunities for training. Uh, so the housing itself, maybe in some examples on, the, on a second floor, on the ground floor, there would be a, a workshop or there are community centers that also have workshops and that offered uh, training programs, as well as childcare, which is something that's very lacking in, this, uh, in the city as well. 
In terms of what the refugees themselves have been thinking, they were pleased that people from so far away were paying such close attention to their situation. Because one of the things, one of the problems of being here in Turkey as a, te- as a refugee under temporary protection is that you feel ignored and forgotten. So that this large group of international students was here examining their, you know, and asking really, you know, uh, pointed questions about their daily lives, I think was quite overwhelming in some ways. I think there were a couple of people who were really touched by that, just that aspect of it. Uh, It does, though, as Robert knows, he sat in on some of the feedback uh, sessions that we did between some Syrian people and the students that the way architects represent their analysis and and the way they represent their proposals is not always understandable to the general public. And this has become very clear uh, with this exhibition because a lot of it has been met with kind of bemusement, bafflement. uh, And so some of the feedback the students received from some of our uh, staff members at the community center was, you know, just keep it simple, a before and after photograph. The same advice architecture students get everywhere, isn't it? I know, (laughs) exactly. And and, and, an exploded AXO is a beautiful thing for us, it doesn't mm. mean a whole lot to necessarily to uh, somebody in the in the general public. And what's the next step for those proposals? Uh, well, should any of them be implemented? And if so, what realistically is the chance that the, the resources will be found to implement them? It's extraordinary the students have done so well in this sort of remote setup. It, it's had a sort of intimacy which has been quite useful in terms of one-to-one but one of the casualties is that the global free unit one of its sort of commitments is that every project involves physical immersion in the place and building so in in Russia or in Lesbos or in other contexts we build so this project will carry on into next year and the aim is to start building initially Teafi has this extraordinary roof a vast concrete roof. So we're going to um, inhabit that roof with a series of projects which will have their sort of feet in the work the students have done, but will also involve volunteers and hopefully members of the displaced community. And through that, we'll train and give them routes into education employment, hopefully. And are you able to, in any way, erode the distinction between kind of refugees as subject and the students as commentator, because presumably you've got all of life there. You, I, I mean, I have no idea, but you've got such huge numbers. I'm guessing yeah. you have architects, you have academics, you have builders, you have engineers. And I imagine there must be something incredibly alienating for them to suddenly be kind of the guinea pigs. Uh, so what can you do to tap into that knowledge? I've noticed a real... Uh... This is not exactly your question, but I've noticed a real evolution with the students from the beginning to to now. At the beginning, they were really in the classic or in the common way, they were looking at refugees as almost a species, which they're Mm. not. Refugees, there are 4 million refugees in uh, in Turkey right now. That's, you know, the population of a small country. There's something of everything, as you point out. Uh, so there are people that, that do have all of these skills that, that we would need on the ground. And so we we are drawing in people with an architecture background for some of the research with WIT. And also the students have been in, in conversation with people as well. So it's less of a classic sense of we're going to plant something here in your neighborhood. There's been a real to and fro 
between the students and who, the people who will ultimately be their clients. And TAFI also itself, uh, everybody has an opinion about what, what, how TAFI should evolve and what it should look like. And I think the proposals that were made during a summer workshop really took that into account. It was very much did not feel as though it was a, a, going to be a foreign invasion into our community center. It felt like people had a really solid understanding of what we were doing. You're listening to 80 Conversations. For more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. It's roughly a third students, um, a third people involved in the classroom. That might be volunteers or, or people working within the organisation, a third beneficiaries. That's the ideal relationship. So the students don't dominate. They're just part of a, a sort of three-legged um, conversation of which the beneficiaries, the clients, if you like, are a third. And that seems really key, doesn't it? I mean, the kind of linguistic nuance of referring to them as clients rather than beneficiaries seems yeah. incredibly significant in this context. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to touch on the distinction between sort of disaster management and dealing with with transient populations. And I think, you know, there's a very obvious place for architecture in that in terms of emergency housing and all those sorts of things and how you deal with this issue of a population which is disempowered and um, culturally kind of other if you like but actually probably permanent I know um, that a lot of the refugees in Izmir have been there for 10 years or so what can be done whose job is it to move from a sort of emergency knee-jerk reaction to a sort of long-term strategic planning reaction is that the job of government or is that academia or is it the third sector what is it i i unfortunately i think it has to be a combination of all th- all three but i for me the situation in izmir at least is that there is a housing issue here anyway there is a marginalized population living in izmir to begin with so for me it would be a you know a, an approach to improving the standard of housing for in particular neighborhoods, one of the problems with integration is that there's such intense competition for the low quality. I mean, to say low quality is a euphemism. I mean, it's downright dangerous housing, um, but there's huge competition for it. So there's it's massively overpriced. Um, and this is what's causing so much tension between the host community and the, the Syrian community. I think that needs to be alleviated. That would go a long way to, uh, to helping integration. Um, the other issues, of course, are economic and have to do with government policies and the way the economy is run. And I don't know that architects can contribute to that or not. But certainly it, it has to, I think we have to work with policymakers. I think a third, a third, a third is a good approach. How has this work with the Global Free Unit impacted on the way you approach your more conventional teaching? I think I've always been involved in working in places like this. Um, and I suppose in a sense that's in the past been more conventional as much as it's within some of the structures that are familiar with in education. So I think now moving towards this sort of itinerant model, almost a franchise, if you like, where you're handing over ownership to multiple others. And then your role is to nest and go to the places that they're hosting on behalf of you. It's a system that begins to break some of those sorts of constraints. It really does. All of those other conventional things, you know, students carrying fees with them and research projects, 
if you can corral them into these environments, they're incredibly useful. You know, is there a sense in which you're actually the pioneer and education now can become freed from these kind of physical constraints and can actually apply expertise to the places it's needed most? One would hope so. I mean, I think um, when the pandemic first impacted on the activities of Global Free Unit, we were incredibly scared that the model where one went somewhere and became engaged over a long period of time would become impossible. But in fact, the connections and equality that is possible by working remotely now has really changed it once more. So colleagues within the Global Free Unit were running a, a project over the summer looking at the situation of Venezuelan refugees um, displaced into Colombia. And there were researchers and students working in South America um, overnight linked to students and researchers working in the UK during the day and in Sweden. And we had this extraordinary sort of global community working on the same problem with total equality, with sort of compassion and, and generosity. It was amazing. What can we do? What can normal, in inverted commas, architects in England do to help the situation? There's, there's real ways in which practices could help. I mean, obviously, obvious ones around providing sort of pro bono services. They're desperately needed in situations like TFE. Um, they could sponsor staff um, or associates of the practice to dip into one of the global free unit classrooms, you know, for a small workshop or advising in some way. Um, fundraise with us, for us, um, look for sources of sponsorship, you know, stuff, bits of material from people who are helping them or working with them. But Critically, you know, as I've said, one of our real commitments is for it not to be a sort of one-way process. It's to find ways in which, be they refugees, displaced people, prisoners, find ways in which we can help them into education and practice. So practices can provide placements, they can provide mentoring, um, befriend some of the displaced population who want to understand how to get involved in architecture possibly come to this country, but not necessarily. I suppose something that I'd like to say, and I suppose it's the most radical way in which a practice or a group of architects could get involved in the global free unit, is to actually host a classroom themselves. And what does that actually entail? Well, that, let's just think of an example. If, if a practice were working in a particular context, you know, say in the UK, for a particular community or group of people or with particular partners, effectively one can begin to formulate a sort of programme in which people can become involved. So students, researchers, maybe the local displaced population, and begin to involve them in those activities to the benefit of those activities, but to the benefit of those participants. That's a very clear call to arms. And if you think you can help in any way, please contact Robert on robert.mull at virginmedia.com. Robert and Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining me today. This is AT Conversations. You can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.